You've likely heard the aphorism, every journey begins with the first step. It's a simple description encapsulating the idea that for change to happen, you must be willing to set out on a path to reach your goals. And sometimes, an opportunity comes along and seems to be just the right route to follow. In this episode, we'll hear from Ron Goldberg, a director of digital communication at the New York Institute of Technology and author of Boy with the Bullhorn, a memoir and history of Act Up New York. Ron was a self-described nice gay Jewish theater queen turned AIDS activist. And while living in New York during the 1980s, he seized the opportunity to join the ACT UP movement. He was instantly involved in protests and demonstrations confronting an uncaring public and ambivalent political leaders who saw AIDS as a gay men's problem, resulting in years of inaction and delayed research into the disease. Ron eventually became an author and chronicled his experiences in the movement and the profound impact it made on his life's journey. Ron, thanks for being part of our podcast series. Oh, my pleasure. Ron, before we get into talking about life's changes and and your joining ACT UP and, and how this sort of changed the trajectory in your life, tell the audience about yourself. Okay, so I'm a New York native, born in the city, grew up in Long Island, I'm great Matt, and was going to be an actor. I went to school in Binghamton, got a BA in theater, and came to New York, you know, to find my success and did the usual, you know, cater waitering, office temping, et cetera, and so forth. During this time, I came to New York in 1980. That, of course, is sort of the beginning of the AIDS crisis. I didn't really know anyone who was sick. It was something I was very aware of. And as the years sort of crept by, I got more and more concerned about and wanted to find some sort of outlet and some way to, you know, get involved in something a little bigger than myself. And in 1987, ACT UP was formed, which is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which, unlike some of the earlier activist groups, this wasn't involved in taking care of people or being um, and getting people to their appointments and things like that, the doctor's appointments, because that stuff, frankly, scared me. That boundary between seeing people my own age or a little older who were sick and dying really kind of freaked me out. But ACT UP was about... It was about demonstrations. It was an activist group in the street. You know, demonstrations to me were sort of like, oh, it's theatrical. <laughs> I could go right. do that. And so I joined them about three months after the organization was founded. So I joined in, in June 1987 and stayed with the group until 1994, 95. Wow. Uh, and was very involved there. And that really changed a lot. <laughs> it's the short version. One of the things that I want to make sure that people are aware that when AIDS acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, it was first recognized. There was this sort of isolationist feeling that you can isolate it within a specific group, mostly among gay men. And there wasn't all of a sudden this feeling like, oh, we have to, we have to come up with a solution to this. We've got to come up with a cure. And what was amazing about it was that I think that to some extent, it was that almost a homophobic feeling back then that, well, okay, it's isolated to them. It's their fault. Therefore, we're not going to do anything about it. It wasn't almost. It was definitely that. Uh, I mean, when when AIDS was first discovered in early 1981, uh, 1982, it was called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency, as if being gay was the cause. Now, we found out, of course, that the disease was HIV, which is the virus that causes AIDS, was around a lot earlier than that. But because it had finally attacked a population 
that had access to healthcare, that was, you know, had doctors, you know, suddenly, oh, there's this thing. And it was, this was gay men. We, of course, then later knew it was involved with uh, IV drug use, sexual partners with people with HIV. I mean, it was uh, transmitted through, you know, blood, semen, other bodily fluids. It was very convenient for the Reagan administration and the people involved at the time in government to ignore it because it was happening to people who they didn't really care about. And you had people like Pat Robertson, who passed away today, and Jerry Falwell, who kind of felt, well, this is the, you know, the wages of sin, right? Right. So it was very convenient for them. And no one cared until uh, really 1985 when Rock Hudson got sick. So at least somebody, people who's a famous actor, who people sort of knew. And that was the first time Reagan actually said the word AIDS. It was 1985, and he didn't make a speech about it until 1987. You know, by which time I think there were like 32,000 deaths. It was allowed to happen. It was because it was happening to convenient groups, and I think homophobia was a was a huge piece of that. No question about it. I think that um, what you bring about in your book as it relates to you and your engagement in this movement, your book is called Boy with the Bullhorn, is both yes. your memoir and that uh, history of ACT UP, it's a phenomenal read. If anyone wants it, the name of the book again is Boy with the Bullhorn. It's published by Fordham University Press. What it gives it is it's sort of a chronology of the movement, but it also very much is a very intimate look into how you became involved and how you first got involved with some trepidations, but then once you were in, you were all in. And maybe you could talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that journey. Sure. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I was looking to get involved, and I actually attended uh, a meeting. There was going to be a big march on Washington that fall for lesbian and gay rights. It was very discouraging, actually. And then as I was leaving, this other group came into the main meeting room at the Lesbian and Gay Center on 13th Street, and I recognized some of the people, and was like, oh, this must be ACT UP, which I've read about. It just started. I just said, oh, I'll hang by the door and just see what this is about. You know, and I was there for three hours. Uh, <laughs> the energy, the intelligence, the passion. It was the first time I kind of felt like, wow, you know, maybe if all these people can get together and we can make change happen. And that's sort of one of the main reasons for writing the book was this idea that while we are taught to be consumers in this country, we're not taught to be citizens. And the idea that a small group of people can make change happen. And I was a part of something where I saw that actually could happen. I was a part of that. So I feel like you know, I'm sort of spreading the gospel, right? right? Particularly to younger people. It's the idea that, you know, if there's something you're passionate about, you can, you know, get together with some people, figure out what to do. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know all the answers, but just figure out one step at a time what you can do. And you can really changed the world in a lot of ways. I left acting. I had this weird balance of like, okay, I could do this sort of, part of the reason I wanted to go into acting was to sort of just share these stories and, you know, be a part of these larger works, or I could do it in my life. Right. And I was like, oh, I can do it in my life. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that, it evolved that way over time. But yeah, I ran committees. The reason why the book is called Boy with the Bullhorn is I became sort of act up uh, unofficial chant queen, you know, at demonstrations, thinking of chants and leading the group in that it allowed me to become the person I wanted to be. 
mm. you know, sort of the phrase, you know, the hero of my own life. Right. Uh, instead of looking for it elsewhere, I was able to do what I had only, you know, thought I could do on stage. I was able to become in life. You know, that's very meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and obviously our podcast is called Lessons from Leaders and Entrepreneurs. And to some extent, I see this very much as a leadership lesson that, you know, we talk to entrepreneurs a lot about, you know, following your passion and leaders living their values and reflecting their values in the organizations that they run. There was this uh, social psychologist named Kurt Lewin, and he described culture not as a painted picture, but as a living process and composed of countless social inter- interactions. And culture is sort of that river that flows and, and friction slows it down and forces speed it up. And depending on where you are within a specific social issue, you need to be a force for change. And oftentimes, not only is that a voice, but it's rallying people together for a cause. And whether that's AIDS activism, whether that's environmental activism, today, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of leaders are now judged by the values that they speak about, but also the values that they, that they act on, that they have, and that they have a cause that they follow. And people want to be involved in any organization that sort of reflects their values today. And I think that to some extent, there was one quote that you got from Dr. King, which is, tension is necessary for growth. And sometimes you don't feel comfortable, but you know what? If you're passionate about it, you've got to get by that and join and do something meaningful. And I think that's what your story reflects. Yeah, I mean, I think I was brought up, uh, you know, I'm a nice nice Jewish boy, (laughs) you know, and you don't, you know, you don't get arrested, certainly, you know, and you don't, you know, there's a, a certain decorum, there's a certain way you try to please everybody. And uh, I became very clear with AIDS is that, you know, if we don't take action, no one is going to, that we are going to have to force this to happen. And that's sort of the Dr. King thing, which is that, you know, uh, he also talks about bringing prejudice, you know, to a boil, like you do these actions, you know, the sit in, you know, at the lunch encounters and things that sort of cause these, these, I want to say, you know, things to sort of explode and bring it into the light so that it can heal. You know, these things fester if they stay underground. And, you know, this way you bring them into the light, they sort of burst open, and so we can talk about it, so they can heal, so that we can move forward. And that's, you know, certainly the role of street activists, which is what, you know, ACT UP, part of ACT UP was. We also, what was really interesting about the group is that we had both um, people who were out in the street yelling and screaming, but also they were yelling and screaming to get into the room. And once we got into the room, we had people, you know, who really knew, for instance, you know, how drug approval, actually we all knew how drug approvals happen, you know, how to push the system, how the system in New York City works, how the healthcare system works. We sort of taught each other these things. So when we got into the room, we could actually negotiate. But our role as street activists is not negotiation. You demand what is necessary not ask for what is possible. There are other people who can ask for what is possible. I mean, what, I think what, what you're saying is also this idea that um, living, we talk now a lot about living authentic lives. Yes. I mean, right? That's, you know, and authenticity is the voice. I know it's, it's true in marketing. I mean, at, at New York Tech, I'm the director of digital communications and we do the website and we do these other things. So you want to, you know, communicate in an authentic voice. Sure. But the thing about authentic voice, it's, easier. (laughs) If you're true to yourself, it is so much easier to be who you are and express who you are because you're not trying to fit yourself into some sort of, you know, predetermined pattern 
And I think that's an important thing for entrepreneurs. I think that's an important thing for people in general. You know, do things that reflect who you are and what your beliefs actually are. And I, I think you'll be happier. Um, I can't speak to more successful, but you'll certainly be happier. Well, no, I think it's an important factor that in life, sometimes doing something new feels uncomfortable, right? You're disrupting mm-hmm. the equilibrium in your life. And so after a while, you get past that, and then you begin to feel comfortable with it, and it becomes ingrained in what you do. And that's for anybody. Right. And one of the things that, and it was a quote that you gave, I think it was uh, Larry Kramer. You wrote, by 1991, the question was, where are we going? What is the problem with ACT UP? We are losing our radical edge. I've read that quote a couple of times because what it reflects is that a lot of times what you're passionate about and you want to change society, it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to constantly rethink the message or change an approach. And we use the term right in marketing called pivoting, right? You've got to change. And things evolve over time. And you can't lose your edge. You can't feel like, well, be frustrated and give up. And it's that persistence and resilience that really makes the difference between those that are successful and those that fail. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you have to also, I mean, there is something to reading the room, right? Yeah. Part of it is you have to be able to see what the, what the situation was three years ago isn't the situation now. Right. For us, it was a question of when we first started, we were this, you know, upstart group and we were just screaming to get attention bring attention to AIDS and to push certain things. And, you know, by this time, it's three years later, we were now, you know, we were all volunteer. So the overhead was, was very low. But, you know, and but we were fundraising up to like a million dollars a year. So we were not this little penny ante group right. anymore. Sure. And we were also in those rooms. We were meeting with, with Tony Fauci. We were meeting with the mayor. We were, we were in, a number of us were in those rooms. And how do you, how do you adjust? And actually there was a tension that grew in the group because, you know, in this situation, we had people who were still, who were like, oh, now we have, we're at the table, let's negotiate while we still have people going, no, 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 there's huger, you know, the bigger issues, systemic issues, we must stay outside. And that sort of, you know, that was part of what Larry was complaining about, that sort of losing our radical edge. Mm. But you do need to be able to pivot. You need to have that flexibility. And I think part of what that's also about is having people around in constant, I think I talked earlier about having these teach-ins where we, you know, sort of educated one another about issues. And if you keep everyone informed, you know, the more transparency actually for us, the better it was. Right. Because everyone realized people were all sort of working in good faith and we may have disagreements, but okay, I get what you're doing. I understand why you're going this way. And we, you know, and I want to go that way. And we continue to do that together, but it's tricky. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely it is. And, you know, look, you've got to bring in various points of view and you've really got to embrace the fact is that both society, your group, members change over time. They evolve. The message is important. You've got to constantly reinforce it. And we see that with with any good leader is to to have that vision Mm -hmm. and constantly reinforce it. And then have a set of goals and objectives, both long and short term, that you want to accomplish along the way. You know, you didn't become an author immediately following your involvement with the movement. It, it sort of evolved over time. What was it about becoming an author and then realizing you had a story to tell? Talk about that journey a little bit. I think most of us understood that we were taking part in history. It was a, a key moment. I think we saw how we were impacting the world and making change happen in this, you know, this huge epidemic. I mean, like many people, I kept 
sort of, you know, all our documents, everything we passed out. We had teaching handbooks, we had flyers, we had posters, we had, you know, all sorts of handouts and informational. <laughs> I'm turning around looking. I have like <laughs> file cabinets and boxes full of these things. Mm. And I think I understood very early that I was a witness. I was a participant, but I was also a witness to history, particularly because I wasn't HIV positive, and so I was going to survive. And I don't know. I, I think it's also sort of a Jewish thing. I grew up, my father fought in World War II. The idea of the Holocaust mm. and everything that happened was very present in my life. And, you know, this sense of having to, you know, bear witness, tell the story, pass it on. Because also there was no, I don't think any of us trusted that this history was going to get out there if we didn't tell it. Right. I was, like a lot of people, very aware of that. And actually, I started writing mostly to figure out what I had just gone through when I, when I left the group. As I was leaving the group, I started to write just to sort of keep track. And I did a, a timeline because I wanted to write. I needed to figure out the chronology. And I used my old date books and everything and sort of pieced it together. And I actually had a book proposal out in the early 90s and had an agent and no one wanted it. It was too early. The crisis was still going on. No one wanted to read this stuff. So I put it away. I actually started working. I was working at law firms. I was a legal secretary. I was helping a partner manage her practice. That's where I started to do marketing. Right. And at my, I was returning 50. And that's when the big collapse happened in 2008. Yeah, sure. Basically, the law firm I was at went out of business on my birthday. My 50th birthday. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, huh. Maybe <laughs> message. <laughs> My life is not subtle. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a, maybe this is a message here. And actually, earlier that year, when I was thinking about turning fifty, I was like, "What's important to me right now? I am making money for lawyers, and nothing against lawyers, but that really—I'd always done. You know, I waited tables so I could be an actor. I worked at law firms so I could be an activist. And suddenly, all I was doing was the work, right? That work, and not so I could do what I was passionate about. And I realized. Oh, I need to get back to the book. You know, I, I, <laughs> I tell the story at the beginning of my book about Larry Kramer, who was a key figure in gay and particularly AIDS history. He's sort of the screaming madman kind of, you know, a prophet figure. He was one of the leaders who started Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was the first AIDS group in 1982. And he was also one of the, one of the early leaders of Hacked Up. And I came home from a Passover Seder at my parents' house to an answering machine going with like, Ron Goldberg, this is Larry Kramer. Where is your timeline? <laughs> Call me. And I'm like, you know, I go, well, when, you know, when gay Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and demands your tablets, what do you do? <laughs> you call him. And, you know, I said, also, I'm, I'm back writing this book. He's like, great. Send me your chapters. Let me see, you know. And he became a, a mentor. And it was a story I needed to tell. I felt a responsibility to tell it. I felt it was an honor to tell it. I mean, now I guess, you know, I have a book out. I've won an award. I guess I'm a writer. But it was something I was really compelled to do. Being an act up was the most important thing I ever did in my life, hmm. which it is. Writing this book is, is has been a real close second. Just to get the history down, not only my own sort of experience of it, but and that actually came later. I was really sort of trying to write a history of the group, sort of, you know, chronologically what happened. And the book is very 
it's in a university press, so it's actually it's footnoted and all that stuff. But it's also this personal memoir. And sure. when I was doing an early draft of it, a friend of mine said, you know, you really need to put more of you in here because we have to follow a journey. We have to follow somebody's, you know, progress through this. And that was really helpful and hard. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a privilege. Uh, it really has been a privilege. And now I'm trying to go around and talk about this work, ideally to, you know, colleges and students and activists about, you know, my experiences and how if I can do it and if we could do it, you can do it and sort of spread the gospel as it were. Right, right. It's a wonderful read. I would recommend it to anyone. I think that putting yourself out there and ex- exposing your journey to the public, really, it connects you with the activities that were going on. And I, I thought it was just a brilliant read. Thank you for producing it. Oh, thank you. That's uh, lovely. Uh, um, so I have a question. So what one word describes who you are? Oh, boy. Um, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, cause the one that just keeps coming to my head is, engaged to engage with the world uh-huh. with art with people to be open present i mean i think that's i mean i know that's a lot of words so i <laughs> apologize there but i think that's really it to you know to be aware and open to what what is around you mm-hmm. you know I, I live in new york city and uh, you know uh, like everyone it's like I, I walk around and everyone is staring at their phones you know, or you go to a museum and everyone is like, you know, taking photos of what's on the wall as opposed to like experiencing the art with their own eyes. This weird thing. I mean, maybe that's my actor training too. It's sort of like, oh, experience the moment, be here. You know, what are you feeling? You know, um, as opposed to trying to sort of like, oh, I'll record it now and I'll get back to it later. Right. But how did it make you feel in the moment? That's that's the critical aspect, right? Exactly. Right. And what was the emotional reaction you had when you first laid eyes on that piece of art or that building or meeting those people? Mm-hmm. And again, I know you wanted to explain the word engaged, but that's really a powerful force in today's society. And it was funny, I was listening to a commentator talk about the epidemic of loneliness in our country and how people feel isolated. And you're right, no matter where you live today, people seem to be staring at their cell phones. But overall, I would think that that's a good way to be, no matter who you are at any point in your life, is to be engaged. And it's especially important for leaders who want to understand both from their constituents or the people that they serve, how life is impacting them and what you can do differently. So I I thought that was great. Ron, thank you so much for being part of this. I really appreciate you taking the time and being part of our podcast series. Although he first set out to be an actor, Ron sought a different role when the AIDS crisis beset the gay community in the 1980s. Working with the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, ACT UP for short, Ron found himself as a social activist. He used his voice as a force for change, to help rally people together for a cause. This journey eventually led him to becoming an award-winning author, chronicling his experiences and those of ACT UP, as he said both as a participant and witness to history. I believe we see in Ron's journey intentional change. Intentional change has been viewed as envisioning the ideal self, who you wish to be and what you want to do in your work and life. It's about exploring the authentic self to discover the gaps you need to fill and the strengths you need to build. It's about developing a roadmap for turning aspirations into reality. Ron talked about the importance of authenticity. 
We certainly understand leaders should communicate and act in a way that reflects who they are, their beliefs, and their values. But that goes for anyone in any role. And the one word Ron used to describe himself is engaged. To be aware of and open to what is around you, to be attentive to life's experiences, and the people in our lives. We thank Ron for sharing his insights and life's experiences. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecca and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The interim dean of the School of Management and executive producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohen. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. And our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Professor Ellie Schwartz and Victoria Greco for all their support. Until next time.